Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's hard to imagine uh, writing the history, the, the underground history of American foreign policy since the Second World War, since the 60s at least, without reference, referencing the work of Seymour Hersh. He has broken so many of the most important stories uh, from the My Lai Massacre to the secret bombing of Cambodia, the uh, CIA's role in the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, uh, the atrocities in the first Gulf War, uh, up through Abu Ghraib. Um, but what you might not know is that Seymour Hersh started out as a beat reporter in, in Chicago. And, and so I, we've never actually talked about this, and I wanted to ask you uh, how that experience uh, shaped you uh, as a reporter. What, what did you learn from that beat? How did it inform the work you're, you're best known for? Um. I, my, uh, my parents are immigrants, that wonderful word these days, and um, uh, no education. They left uh, Western, Eastern Europe, um, and um, uh, we were on our own. I was uh, four children, and um, I was not really in the world um, because my father died young and I had to work. Just to tell you all these things, I got a, the only thing that good happened is I got a scholarship to the University of Chicago, which was a great school. I, we were in Chicago. And um, uh, what I'm saying is it didn't come because my parents were, um, you know, had fought against the Rosenberg killings. There wasn't, there wasn't any po- politics. You weren't a red diaper baby. I wasn't a red diaper baby. And politics became, um, <laughs> politics were, uh, this is the, uh, I went to university in the, in the 50s and Eisenhower was so boring and, and we were more interested in the daily crossword puzzle than anything else. So um, when I did go, at Chicago, just to tell you what it was like, and that's not uninteresting in terms of figuring out life. Um, I, I, I always tell the story. I was truly asked very early when I was there whether I was a Platonist or, or a Socratic or, or a Maoist, and I actually thought M E O W. What the hell does that have to do with it? You know, I didn't. I was that. So I didn't come from an intellectual background. When I was about twelve or thirteen, on my own, I started buying the Book of the Month Club. Which was ninety nine cents. It was one of those. It was every they would advertise, and you had a, there was a, a fiction and nonfiction selection. And most of the nonfiction selection was horribly anti communist stuff, but it didn't matter. I always bought the for ninety nine cents every month for about four years. I bought the volume, and it would include a long history of the Habsburg and something like that. So I really I had my own little base of information. School was always sort of secondary. So I got out of college and I went to law school. Hated law school. Couldn't stand it. Bummed around. Got a job working as a police reporter. Uh, if anybody's ever heard of Front Page by Ben Hecht, it was known as the City News Bureau. There's so much crime in Chicago, famous, you know, John Dillinger, um, uh, um, Al Capone. It was a criminal city. There was a comedian, uh, Mort Saul, a very funny, ironic guy, who described the outer drive, this main highway, um, because uh, the police were so corrupt when they stopped you for speeding. 
he described it as the last outpost of collective bargaining. You start ten dollars to twenty dollars to get out of this ticket, and it was just that open. So anyway, I, I staggered. The city news bureau hired people. They had two requirements. You, you could, if you graduated from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, you could get a job there, or if you had a BA, you could apply and just wait. So I, I just somebody told me about it. I applied years six months later. I was selling whiskey. I was trying to, you know, 23 and 22. For the first time, I was on my own. My mother, who I lived with after my father died, my, I, uh, we, we had a family. Who's going to, you know how it is in family, who's going to take her for these years? <laughs> and my brother took her after I graduated from college. I did five years <laughs> of taking care of my mother. Anyway, um, and so I started this police agency, and I was covering Chicago police as a 22, 23-year-old kid. And so... When I talk, think about what I did in terms of having a counter-narrative, it's all, it's all about a counter-narrative. The government controls the narrative always. And what you want to do is you want to say, okay, um, I was just telling, I was seeing a very good lawyer here earlier, one of your, one of your great lawyers, one of your great radical lawyers. And the way I looked at what happened in France when those, those crazy Salafists, we don't know, Angry kids, we don't know. ISI uh, exports, I doubt that, despite what the press says. When they they blew up and they killed all those people in the in the uh, at the concert, the whole restaurants, the and then they ended up they ended up in a house, an apartment, a couple of days later. And what the police did is they destroyed the place. If you remember, they killed everybody. And then once they had everybody killed, they then announced that they had found one of them had a Syrian passport. I think it was one of them had a Syrian passport. Aha, uh-huh, Syria. And I'm, I'm just sitting in Washington saying, you idiots in the, in the press corps, they control the narrative at that point. The police have, it's all their narrative because they've killed everybody. They didn't have to kill them. They're in an apartment. They could have landed, they could have arrested people. What maybe. was that? You did report, I think I read somewhere, I think it was an interview that you gave in 1975, um, that you had been put on a story about uh, a man in Chicago who had killed his family and then committed suicide. And your editor said, was this man, did this man happen to be of the Negro well, persuasion? Well, you, then, you're pushing me to do what I want to do. Okay, what you want me to do? All right, I'll do what you want me to do. <laughs> Adam, Adam, Adam remembers everything, even things that he shouldn't from 40 years ago. Anyway, what happened is I learned some things. I'm covering police. I eventually make it out of a copy boy, and I get to be covering Chicago police midnight to 8 o'clock, in the central police headquarters, the most corrupt police department in history. And the way it worked is, I learned a lot. They would, the, some of the cops were nice and give me what we called then Mary Jane, that they confiscated marijuana. I, sm- I began to smoke some dope there. And I saw these primitive eight-inch real pornographic movies that they used to show to us. But every once in a while, something would happen. And two things happened, I think, that in a funny way shaped me. One of them was one night on the radio, and I was very diligent. Um, um, my job was to be the first person on the scene. The City News Bureau was owned by the newspapers of Chicago and the radio stations and the wire services because there was so much crime and wrongdoing. Our job was to go to be the first, first person there and if it was really, and file a story on there, they had a wire. And if it was interesting enough, they might send one of their reporters there. So I was basically just a, a gopher um, um, and rarely getting anything in print, but I would be a tipster. So there was a, a, couple of, a couple of federal cops, postal inspectors, were killed. There was a, a flash report. They had, they, they, they had been 
they hadn't gotten into a fight with people they were trying to arrest and there was a bad shoot up and they were, and the police were saying, oh my God, we got two dead. And uh, it was about a mile away from downtown Chicago. So I, I don't know, I used to, I used to park in the underground the parking lot at the police station. So I ran like a diligent guy. I got to the scene. I was in the army later and saw stuff, but I hadn't seen dead people there. And I get to the scene and I got through it because of my press card. I could get through the perimeter, the outside perimeter. And I look at the car and it's full of bullet holes and there's two guys. I mean, people, it's an ugly sight to see somebody with a lot of bullets and blood all over. And I went to the sergeant, one of the sergeants, Chicago police. These are federal employees, but cops are cops and they have the same sort of affinity. Um, and I went to him and I said to the sergeant, he asked who I was and I showed him my ID and I said, are they dead? And Chicago cop being a Chicago cop, he grabbed me by my jacket or my shirt and threw me really hard against the police car. I mean, it really hurt me. And he said, you, whatever he called me, all sorts of names, not until they're pronounced by the coroner. So I had a thought, what do I do? They're clearly dead, but I waited. 20 minutes later, the coroner came and nothing ended. So I learned sometimes right away, it's not so bad to wait. It's really not so bad to wait. And that's the way it translates in the real world. The National R, like your GCHQ, we intercept everything. And when we intercept something that we think is hot and good, uh, particularly, let's say, in Arabic, slang Arabic, any of you know, if it's not your native tongue, come on. And they, the NSA would intercept something, and they would always write in, a, in, in that world, if it's really important, they think, and it's going to go to the president, it's called National Security Advisor. It's got to go to, if it's called a critic. Has to be in the desk of the National Security Advisor within 10 minutes. So the NSA would run stuff by the National Security Advisor in 10 minutes was the first wave of intercept. And by the second or third day, everything they, they translated was completely wrong. And I saw that happen. And so it's just, it, waiting isn't so bad. The second thing, Adam, you're referring to, one night I was working the South Side Beat where Hyde Park is. Hyde Park is where the University of Chicago is. I'm sure somebody here has been there, where I, where I grew up. And lived, went to school. And there was a police report. It was, it's a, Chicago's a ghettoized city, even pretty much. Once you get past a certain street, it's almost all African, all, all black. And, um, there was a report of a terrible crime. Father went crazy, shot up his wife and house and set the house on fire. And anyway, I went out there and, um, in, in, in front of this apartment building, um, the police department had laid out bodies wrapped in sheets, like sort of like mama bear, papa bear by size. I, I, I remember seven, but I told the story once and somebody who worked with me way back then was uh, something in Chicago said it was six. So anyway, and there were a number of people that I was horrified. I'd never seen anything like that. And the cops, I got the names and I ran to a payphone. There was no cell phones. I mean, can you imagine a world without it? And I went to a payphone and I'm dictating it. The way it worked, you dictated to the city newsroom. The edit, the, uh, they were a downtown building. They had, had uh, um, guys who, uh, uh, who rewrite, the rewrite guys. And I remember his name, Casey Buckroy, became the environmental editor of the Chicago Tribune, really nice guy. So I'm dictating to Casey. I'm, I'm a month into the business, all excited and appalled. And I'm dictating, and the night editor was a man named Dornhofer, who was a, a, a thug, and as editors tend to be. And, um, <laughs> and we had a phone system in which, and I remember it like today, and he went on the intercom and he said, and the adjective pissed me off, but he did use it. He said, my good dear, um, my good dear energetic. There was always a concern about people with passion in a newspaper business, La Passionera. My friend, I have a friend named Gloria Emerson, who you might know, a wonderful reporter, 
We were dear friends, and the, the New York Times hated her because she was passionate about the Vietnamese, the ones we were killing. And anyway... She wrote a great book on it, too, Winners and Losers. She was, yeah. you know, she got Parkinson. And uh, I mean, we were, uh, there was four of us, Tony Lewis, a guy named Richard Eder, who's a wonderful, if you've ever reviewed you know, how great he was, myself and um, Gloria. At, we all worked at the New York Times at the same time. And we used to, um, at the New York Times, one time we were all going to lunch, and the editor was A. Rosenthal, and his father, his partner was uh, Peter uh, with the Gelb. Gelb, yeah, Leslie and, Gelb. And his, his son is Peter, runs the Metropolitan Opera. Leslie Gelb. Yeah, le- no, um, Les- Ar- Arthur, Gelb. Arthur Gelb. Arthur Gelb. And they came to the, the four of us are going to lunch on the same floor, the third floor, and the two of them, the two big bosses were going out to lunch. And um, Gelb said, ah, the cell was having its meeting. Now, this is in the 70s. Well, didn't Rosenthal, you, Rosenthal call you my little commie? No, what he used to do is come into the newsroom. He hired, they wouldn't hire me initially. Uh, Sean hired me at the New Yorker in 1970. Off the meal, I stuff. the New York Times wouldn't hire me. And two years later, he called me up, and he said, you, you know, they were dead in the water. They were so, and he knew we needed something, so he, he asked me to come. And I remember going to Sean. William Sean was his famous editor. who was so amazing. And I said, ah, oh, I was doing great with Sean, making a lot of money and writing stuff for him. The long, two long, three long pieces that became a book. And it was a great place to work. It was a writer's place. When, they, when you got a proof back, if they wanted to change something, uh, they asked you. And, you know, the first proof, I, this is a digression. Adam said he's going to watch me on this. But the first proof, I did a story <laughs> in 1970. The first story I ever did for The New Yorker was something I ran into, some horrible event, also in Vietnam. I wasn't meant to just do Vietnam, but I was doing that. And I, I was giving speeches, and the kids who were in the war all would come to me. As people now come to me a lot in the government about wrongdoing. They really do. And it, it came, and I wrote a story, and I called up Sean, I told him what I had, and he said, just do it. I had something else I was doing. So I wrote this story. I had an editor named Pat Crow, who was very bright. And Pat, we edited the piece, long word, 12,000 words. And Pat said to me, Sean wants to read it. It was my first piece being published. And I'd never worked for a newspaper. I'd been a wire service guy and done the Milai story. Then been a book about it. But I'd never worked for a newspaper, which made it unusual for The New Yorker. And so about mail, we had something called mail then. Called Smail now, I guess. And so I, the first, so I got, about a week later, I got a proof from Sean. I'm, what, 29 or something like that. And I was nervous about it, as I should be. And I opened it up, and there were three galleys. I mean, there was about 30 or 40 galleys. Each, if you know New Yorkers, about 400 words on a galley, and narrow margin. And the, it was great. The first, nothing on it. Second galley, nothing on it. And the third galley was, I had a, in the middle of it, I had a cliche. He took the easy way out, I think it was. He was right. I, he took the easy way out or something like that. And Sean circled it. And he had a very small handwriting. And in a margin, he wrote, Mr. No, no dot, just Mr. No dot, Mr. Mr. Hirsch, dash. In the next line, he wrote, please, PLS, use words. <laughs> I got a master's degree in journalism in one minute. Please use words. Let's avoid cliches and Hackney's <laughs> phrase. That stuck with me forever. Anyway, we still Cy, use it. Sai, was, was, was I of Stone an important well, figure well, let, to you? Let me just okay. finish the story about this. <laughs> I, I, no, I told him. I, we didn't talk. I, told him, I didn't want to talk in advance because Adam's going to try and keep me going on the train. I called in and Dornberg said, my poor uh, Mr. Hirsch, my alas... My energetic Mr. Hirsch, alas, were the poor victims of the American Negro persuasion. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, cheap it out. I said, what does that mean? He said, what you file is seven people died in a fire today in Chicago. That's, how, that's what I learned. 
And I was innocent. I didn't know it was that bad. And so I learned those things. And, I, you know, and also... Um, it's also a story that resonates today, given the recent report on atrocities in Chicago committed by the Chicago police, police force. Does anything change? Yeah. You know, when I later went to work for the AP in Chicago, I ended up being hired there. I, I worked first in South Dakota um, after being in the Army. When I went to work for uh, making my way into civilization, I started in South Dakota for United Press covering... I ended up, but when I got to Chicago, the first thing I did once I, once I got... Once they began to appreciate me, which they did, I had a, they, they let me. My job in Chicago for a year was just go every day and write a story, and I did a big thing on the Chicago Police Department because I really hated them, and uh, and nobody was touching the Chicago Police Department. Something else I learned: the, the power. You know, we anyway. Um, the story ran it was a feature story. They ran those they were, for Sunday papers. Two of the four Chicago papers, which knew much more about what was going on in Chicago, ran my story on the front page. And I knew then, boy, we are really a crazy business. This is really a crazy business. And so extrapolating to today, what's our function? The world is increasingly being run by fools and idiots and liars and despots and criminals. And I like to think that our job is sort of like a public defender in America. Our job is when some guy's collared by the police and nobody, he's caught, accused of a crime and he has nobody supporting him, a public defender's job is to make the police at least uh, behave in some responsible way. We should be doing that. Our job is to make these people, and instead we join the team. But, you know, the mass murder that goes on every day is just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not challenged enough. Anyway. What do you want to, what'd you, I, I interrupted you. What'd you where'd you want to go to? I, well, I, I was curious as to whether, I, I mean, I think I.F. Stone was also an important figure for you at that uh, time, right? You met him in D.C. I got in the 60s. sent by the AP to, to the Washington, which is a good thing, in 2014, uh, two, two, uh, two, uh, well, 1964, the Vietnam, 65, the Vietnam War was just beginning. And I did a, I worked on the desk, and then they assigned me to the Pentagon, which is a great beat, you know, for somebody. I don't know what they were thinking about. Kid named Seymour Hirsch from the University of Chicago. I, 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 I'm sure they had no idea how I was going to not like the war, and so I began to write stories for the AP in new, sort of careful ways that were very negative about the war. And one day, I, my wife and I were just married, married a year before, and like all couples, we'd go to bed at three or four on Saturday, Saturday night. One Sunday morning, about six or seven, I have Stone calls me. Yeah, I'm in the phone book. And he said, you're the right Hirsch, aren't you? He said, I'm Izzy Stone. I said, my God, my, my, I didn't know about it, but my, my wife's parents have been reading him since the 50s, and I picked up on it right away, obviously. Um, I have Stone had it, I have Stone Weekly. He was this amazing, um, somebody who used the information available to make heuristic deductions that were always right. And um, um, in any case, and he started telling me about a story on page 12 in the Philadelphia Bulletin and the Sunday paper... <laughs> <laughs> he would go out every he, to a newsstand. Every morning, there was a newsstand in Washington got all the out-of-town papers. He would get it about 5 in the morning and start going through them. And there was no way to discourage him from calling me every Sunday with something about before dawn, something in the Baltimore sun. <laughs> so we became friends. And we became, he, he saw what I was doing. And we became the kind of friends where um, uh, when I had Milai and nobody would publish it, I went to him. Mm. So he was... He was um, uh, he was avuncular. Uh, he was um, um, the kind of person that um, uh, you could, um, his wife would, if, if you had a crisis and you wanted, I was with my, my daughter was, did ballet in, in 
I used to go have coffee with him, and Izzy wanted me to do something with him, and his wife babysat, you know, for that kind of stuff. That's the way it goes. Well, you know, Stone was 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 uh, famous, as you point out, for his for his methods, the way that he would uh, pour over official documents and tell a different story. And in a sense, I mean, you're you're also celebrated uh, for your methods. There's something distinctly old-fashioned, almost artisanal about them in our own sort of internet-driven. Age. I mean, when I when I read you, even if I'm reading you online, I can smell newsprint. I smell coffee. I, you know, well, and, I, and I I wonder. I mean, do you think we've lost something? I mean, you're you you call people. You you know, you make calls. You speak to people. Um, uh, you have uh, you know, you're very well known for your contacts within the bureaucracy. Um, it's a style of reporting that, to some extent, has kind of gone out of fashion. You know, I do a lot of speaking. Actually, it's interesting. I do a lot of speaking at international conferences on journalism more sometimes than in America. And it's tough for me when I go to the Middle East. I've gone to Jordan and to Egypt and s- spoken to, um, uh, I did a three-day session in Egypt on investigative reporting for 70 people. Half of them were um, from different countries in, e- in the Middle East. Uh, the woman reporters, who were really much more edgy, all in burqa, because you know they had to be careful. And I'm telling people how to write stories there and going through stories. We just did day by day the question of what I did. This is a few years back. Uh, stories that are going to get a beat up and, and maybe mauled and their families hurt. It was a very ambivalent thing to do so. But there's always, you know, human nature. There's, in that world, there is a, a desperate drive to get better reporting. I, more passion there than I see in our, our society. I speak at journalism groups when I do speak in America. I always say, I always have a couple things to say to journalism schools who are less and less interested. Um, um, I do say that, um, I hate to say this, guys, but you, you can't write without reading. You gotta read. You gotta know stuff. And if somebody just, I gave something, did something last night, and afterwards a young woman came up to me, wanted some advice, and I said, start reading the papers and read the stories you think are boring. Read about arms control. Read about everything. Read the stories you think are boring. And just really make it a point, and then, then read the magazine articles you think are boring. And then read the books you think are boring. And, and, and that's, that's one thing to do. I, I, I probably do less of it now because I'm older and slower. And, uh, but, and the second thing is a technical thing that I see often. I, I just say basically, I'll use the language I say, but only because that's the way I really talk. I say, get the fuck out of the way of the story. Do enough work so that something is really important and dramatic. You can tell without saying those words. And I had an experience. The trouble doing this so much, and this is my last day of four days here, is that my arm is sore from brushing snow off my mantle on top of Mount Olympic. You know, I just, you know, it's so self-serving. It's an an hour and a half about how wonderful I am. (laughs) Ask my wife. It's not that simple. But, and so. We'll get to some tougher questions. No, but, but, you know, it, it is true. I do, I get the Milai story, and um, I do the Milai story, and then I want to go beyond it. I want to write a book about it, because I, these, I write newspaper stories, and I wrote, I saw then how vulnerable the press is. I own that story. I was a freelance reporter, and nobody would run it. And Izzy Stone um, said, you just have to put it out, find a way to do it. And so we did it through an anti-war news service called the Dispatch News Service. Just put out one story cold. I did something... I, I, I was, I had seen this lieutenant who did it. I saw him, I found him. And I found him by looking, looking for a long time. I found this friggin' Lieutenant Kelly who was hidden. 
He was on a, I knew he was on a base. He was hidden in the senior officer's quarters for generals, a lieutenant that was being charged of killing uh, 300 people. I mean, who would have thought he was there? But I found him, and he told me a lot. Anyway, so I had this story, and um, uh, the New York Times, I just had a, I was a freelance reporter. I'd been the year, I quit the AP because I just couldn't do enough about the war, and I didn't know what to do. And I had a wonderful, uh, Izzy among others, but a woman named Mary McGorry, a wonderful columnist, said that, Bobby Kennedy wasn't going to run. Johnson was going to run for re-election. The war was mass murder. I knew that by OJT. The war was on-the-job training. It was just mass murder. And no matter how much I tried to be edgy about it, I was always in a war with the powers that be at the New Yorker, New York at the AP, Associated Press. And even then, the, the New York Times, uh, Neil Sheehan was a very good journalist covering the Pentagon, and he protected me. Every time there was a story that they were going to, they really were going to kill me, the Times ran it as an AP story. He made sure they did. So I was protected, as long as it was in the New York Times by the AP, because the, the New York Times, when I worked there, they, we, re- we rewrite everybody. There's nobody but us. You know, that's the way it works. In any case, so the history is that, um, so I went to work, uh, Mary McGorry was a friend of a, Bobby Kennedy would run, but a senator named Eugene McCarthy would run. And so she says, you've got to work for him. I was freelancing. And I said, and, and this is, um, um, in 60, after I left the AP, and I went to work, I went to see the center who I didn't know, and he didn't know me, he was just very bright. He was a Benedictine. And I, I was gonna write his speeches. And he, you know, he was running for president, and he had no real staff. Uh, he, had, he had friends in the, the Washington Catholic community. Um, and um, Mary was his friend and said he really needs help. And, and Mary, uh, Mary was this quite brilliant woman, and, um, and we were really, um, she lived across the street, we were all dear friends. And so, um, so I asked him, well, what do you want in speeches? I'd never written speeches. He said, well, my guy is Charles Pegui. <laughs> if you know Charles Pegui, he's the most sterile 18th, 19th century French. <laughs> he said, none of the Kennedy stuff, no triads, can win the war, will win the war, none of that, because he was very ascetic, went to mass every day, and I, and I could never tell anything about, no press about it, because he really believed the separation of church and state. Um, and so I start working for him. I'm going to go off to New Hampshire. We're campaigning against the, a, he's a Democrat challenging his sitting president. I mean, that's unheard of because Johnson had all the power. Uh, this is the Bernie Sanders story in a way. Um, oh, Joe, McCarthy had something. He was younger and much prettier <laughs> and just as cranky. <laughs> but anyway, and, um, um, and so uh, we're going along and I remember calling my wife, no internet then, and we just had, we'd had a baby, and, and she wasn't so happy about me being gone all the time, and I would say in the first couple of weeks, I thought, I'm, 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 I'm screwing the peace movement. We're going nowhere. He's running an anti-war candidate, and then we go to University of Wisconsin, where we had a, a couple thousand, you can, you can raise a, an audience in University of Wisconsin for anything. It's the most, uh, even then, it was the most radical, radical school around. Not so much now, but it was. Women's studies was very big. They're very radical, and um, great history department. And, and so we had this thing going, and a student asked a tough question about what's, or something, what's the core of, what's, why are you so dead set against the war? And he said something that was amazing to me. I was in love with him after that. He said, the real issue is, this is an immoral war. We're fighting an immoral war, and that stuck with me. I think when the Americans get out, we decide when like, Obama, look, Obama, I'm hard on Obama because, there's no question in my mind, that's all it is, that he's probably going to be the best president we're going to have for the next 50 years. 
which is a sad thing to say, because he, he's, in many ways, he's on foreign policy, except for the Iranian deal, he's pretty terrible. Um, there's a little, ch- a little introduction I wrote to this book that's just devastating, I think, in terms of what he was doing about the Afghan. From the very beginning, he was going to go in Afghan. And he was playing all of us, all during that war, all during that campaign, hope and faith, or hope and change. He had the same idea. Anyway, and so the point of all this is that um, we pull out of, we, we cut a deal that we're going to leave Iraq, and we leave Iraq. We, if you remember the stories, we left at night because our, we didn't want our allied troops to even see us leave. We snuck out. And we have such a moral obligation to that country we've destroyed. It's just... It, I feel like I'm in another planet. Can, can we cycle back just for a moment? Sure. Because um, I, I, I do want to get to Syria. Um, but I wanted to ask you before about, about, we were talking about your methods. And in your reporting, you've, you've depended heavily on, uh, on people who work within the bureaucracy, right? People who work at the State Department, for example, or Pentagon. And often they're, they're often anonymous. They're mostly anonymous. Mostly anonymous. And, I'm, and that that and, and that's, has drawn some criticism. And, I'm, I'm wonder, and, and some of these people, of course, are losers in bureaucratic power struggles. They're people, no, they, sometimes that's, they are. That's the conventional thought, I, that somebody, that you go to somebody well, who my, lost struggle. My job is to echo, to some extent, some of the, okay, <laughs> some of the conventional wisdom. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, how do, you, how do you ascertain the reliability of your sources? I mean, because your sources have agendas. Well, first of all, uh, every friggin' story I wrote that won me eight zillion prizes at the New York Times and all the good stuff I wrote at the AP and all the stuff I did at the New Yorker was <laughs> predicated on anonymous sources. So that's the easiest, that's the easiest lay in town to go attack, <laughs> attack a guy who did the uh, anonymous sources. That's cheap. Uh, and particularly since Obama has been the most vigilant and virulent uh, critic and putting more people in jail for being reporting. But, uh, but even without Obama. I, I'm just wondering how no. you figure out whether someone is a reliable source. Maybe, I mean... Oh, you, you verify. Okay. And oh, what, what, what happens is when you're, like, uh, after 9-11, uh, within... Um, as soon as O2 came around, it was clear what was going to happen. They were going to go to Iraq. I began to write consistently... There's no bomb there. And why do I know there's no bomb there? And something has to do with something in England. Because the, the, there was something called the UNSCOM, United States um, uh, Inspections, after 91. And the people who did those reports, uh, I knew a couple in America, I knew one in Russia, and I knew two, in, two here in England who were on inspectors. And um, we're now talking about um, um, uh, the inspection process began in 91 and went, went on until we actually started uh, attacking um, Baghdad until 03. And a man named Eucaeus, uh, a Swede, was in charge of the inspection process. And I had written stories about the inspection process all along because one of the issues the inspectors had, particularly a, a very aggressive American who was very bright, a guy named Scott Ritter, the problem they had is that um, the UNP would find out very interesting things about what's going on in, in, uh, in Baghdad. And it was very clear that the UN team was getting access to, 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 to his, his, his various um, palaces, I guess you would call it, and his, his MO, how he moved. And we were also, uh, is Eucaeus dead? Doesn't matter. If, um, okay, Eucaeus also, prov- Saddam had a, uh, when, he, when he moved around the country, he had a very complicated um, encryption machine it was Swedish made, Hegelin, 
and it had everything he said was broken up into eight bits and uh, different frequencies. So when he had a conversation with his aides back, there were eight different frequencies you had to de- de- unscramble. It was very complicated. Ukeus got the Swedes, the Swedish company, to give him a model, a copy. So the UN was getting great stuff. And the American government and your country were dying to get it. And the UN's position was, we knew, the UN knew that you guys and my guys wanted to kill him, assassinate him. And they did, the UN did not want to be a party to that. So there was incredible stuff going on. And so I got into that. I got into it in a story. Um, I wrote some very nasty stuff for the New Yorker about it. Um, uh, so one of the pieces had the headline, um, uh, Saddam's best friend, the CIA, <laughs> because you know they were, just, they were just pissing off everybody. And so I got to know the guys. And guess what? The UN did quarterly, the UNSCOM did quarterly reports, long ones. I read them. And there was no question that everything he had had been bombed to death in 91 by us. And the idea had a, that they still, they still say one of the things we learned is that he had, he had, all during those years, he still had the bomb facility. He did have no facilities at all. So I went around, and that, what I would do is I would go around, and I went here to England, and I saw retired guys who were in that unit. And because I had information and because I read stuff, there was enough respect. And I wrote some stories that, that attracted guys. It's not so hard to find. You spend 20 years in the military, let's say, and you're bright. They send you to Harvard, you get a PhD. In some cases, it's, um, there's a lot of language training. Sometimes it's in things, um, uh, mechanical engineering, you know, at, at places. And so, um, and you, you, maybe you're the best Arabic speaker in the army. And in 2000, early 2000, you're assigned as part of your rotation. You're a two-star general. You may be chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Like your Sir Peter Wall was a Peter Wall who was head of the military here, the top job, and everybody wants the top job. And um, um, uh, the guy I wrote about General Dempsey, who's quite bright, people don't know it because we always think he's a Yates scholar in his spare time, and, and he's teaching it. The moment he retired last fall, the next day he's teaching at Duke, teaching ethics and 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 uh, uh, poetry, maybe not poetry, but a class that includes poetry. Anyway, um, uh, we just like don't we don't like to think of military guys as being like that. Anyway. Um, so, uh, I always get into digressions. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry. Ask a question. Uh, wait, we're, we're, we're going to take questions in a moment, okay? You'll be the last um, one now. You screwed, <laughs> you screwed yourself. <laughs> from, I mean, from, from the time that the, uh, actually pretty much from the moment that the, uh, the war in Syria uh, broke out, uh, but let me finish with my sources. I forgot what I was going to please. say. I remember okay. now. I'm old. I do it. You know, um, I had I had I, I spent a couple three hours with Tariq last night. Yesterday we had lunch and we went we did some talk and it began. It was like this old couple, this odd couple. He couldn't remember the name of somebody, and I said, "Give me some more clues because I know him too." <laughs> and we we found everybody by the time we got done with lunch. We found everybody, including it was just amazing. Somebody he met at Princeton. His name was with an R. I said, Roy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, we did that. It was weird. It was very funny. Anyway, um, what it is that you get assigned to Al Gore's office in, uh, for three years. You're being prepped to be, you know, you're getting all the t- all touches. You're being prepped to be an officer who can mingle with the, with, with, uh, the national security apparatus. Election comes, and you've got, you've got uh, Darth Vader there, you know, um, um, uh, Dick, Dick Cheney. And you don't know what to do. This guy's 
completely crazy. No, he's okay until 9-11. Becomes, he's always wants to keep a, a, a necklace around Russia in a crazy, that's, that's the American mantra. P- Putin could do, there's no way, it doesn't matter, we'll talk about him later or not. It doesn't matter, there's no way he's going to get, he's going to, every American's going to, you know, he did it, anyway. Um, I think we're off on about 10 No, but, well, hold on, um, but... hold on, let me just finish. So what, what those guys do is they stay where they are. And eventually, it just, the stuff builds up on their heads so much, and they don't know what to do with it. Somebody like me is almost ineluctable. Mm. You, you can go and you can take this pile of crap from your head and put it on mine. And, and make clear that you're never to mention, I'm, one of the guys literally was working for Cheney. He was an officer, high-ranking officer. Cheney never talked to him one minute after that because he only wanted extreme right ringers around him, and he was distrustful of this officer because he indicated he had some brains and uh, maybe didn't agree. And yet... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When he was promoted, got a promotion, Cheney pinned his new star on him, invited his family, it was gracious, and really pissed off my guy because everybody thinks he's an okay guy. But anyway, so somebody like will come to me and put it on my head, go home and tell his wife, I did a great thing today. I told Hirsch this stuff. He, of course, can't quote me and can't use anything I say directly. But that's the way it goes. People, there are people in, in every government who, when they sign up, they take the oath of office to the Constitution and not to a president. And they take that seriously. Those are the people I find. They find me. I don't find them. And they I, find and me. And I think what some people might not know is that you develop enduring attachments. To 20 these. years. And, and, I mean, all of them, when you refer to them, they're all called my guy. They have different names. They're different people. Oh, but no. it's all my guy, right? When you, there, are when people, you there are people who helped me in stories 20 yeah. years ago that I, I you, we make a point of going to lunch and... I don't seem socially. I don't have. I don't do that. I don't. I have no socializing with anybody. Anybody in government. I just don't. I don't testify. But what go was it, what go was it? go see somebody that ten years ago was great to me and is retired. Go see him and have lunch with him every two three months. There's a man named Tony Taguba, who wrote the report on Abu Ghraib, um, which cost him his career. He was the the highest ranking Filipino. He graduated from Boise State University. His father was uh, a Filipino, and he got a scholar. He got a ROTC scholarship to Boise State. And he graduated, wanted to be in the Army. His father had been in, in the March of Bataan and saved American lives, which was the reason. He then was, the Ameri- we rewarded him by putting him in the American Army, and that's why his son could come and get an ROTC scholarship. Tony graduated from Boise State at five foot three, 115 pounds, and made it to two-star. And uh, would have been three-star. He was in Doha, and he was given the, because of his rank. The way, when you have an investigation like, 
like Abu Ghraib, that when I wrote about the story, they had already done an started an investigation. The way the, the highest ranking officer possibly could be involved is a two-star. You have to have a senior officer. And he was the highest ranking two-star above the highest ranking officer involved in Abu Ghraib. So he got the job and he knew it was a suicide job after a few weeks he, because he was going to tell the truth. And I once said to Tony, um, did you have much racism in the army? He said, racism? He said, when I, when I was a captain and major and lieutenant colonel three times, the army does, if you, if you ask for the pay tuition for going to graduate school at night, wherever you are, if you're in a, even in overseas, they will pay it. Three times I asked the army because I wanted to get a master's degree. Three times and they said things like, you don't even speak good English. You know, we're not gonna, you're not big enough. Who in the hell are you? Three times I did it myself, he said, paid for my own education. And he was married with kids. Racism. So anyway, that's one of the things I drove. He wrote this amazing report. Uh, Rumsfeld um, calls him in when I write the Abu Ghraib story. He comes, he's called in because he wrote the report. I never met the guy. He told me the story later, Don Rumsfeld. Don Rumsfeld is, is, <laughs> first of all, he's not dumb. Uh, I was a kid reporter in Chicago for the AP. He was a congressman, so I knew him then. And he always, even though we would disagree, he always, he was a mocking, sort of funny, cutting guy. He always talked to me. When he became Secretary of Defense, I heard the following story about him. He was having a big meeting about some crisis they had, a Secretary of Defense in his office, and it involved people from the State Department. And I have a friend that was a, an aide to one of the senior people in the State Department. He went as a backbencher. There were the Joint Chiefs and the senior guys in the state and a couple of guys in the White House. And Rummy's running this meeting about what to do about a crisis. And he proposes a plan, and everybody says, yes, yes. And my friend, uh, who later ended up running the MacArthur Foundation, that, that kind of brainy guy, he, he didn't know what to do because nobody was saying anything. So he, he said from the back bench, he said, well, Mr. Secretary, um, uh, pardon me, you know, but that solution you have is one we've tried three times and it hasn't worked. What makes you think it's going to work now? This is a story he told me years later. And McCarthy and, and, and uh, uh, Rumsfeld said, out! He said, I beg your pardon, out, he said. He looked to his boss who looked away. He looked to one of the joint chief, members of the joint chiefs, the, uh, the, uh, it was the Air Force uh, head general, who he knew. He looked away. So he got up. He didn't know what to do. He said, out. So he began to walk to the door. When he got to the door, Rumsfeld said, I will tolerate no dissent in this office. I'm not kidding. This is when they're making decisions. That's the kind of nut nutting that you have. And I learned these things. Mm. It's hard to believe these things go on, that the man would say out because he said, he raised the question about a rational question. What was your question, Adam? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question about your reporting on Syria. Um, oh, sure. You, I mean, you, you've, you have portrayed um, the Assad regime as a bulwark uh, against uh, uh, Islamist extremists. And I'm wondering what you make of another argument. There's another school of thought on this, uh, which would argue that, uh, on, on the contrary, um, the Assad regime, until quite recently, focused its energies on defeating less extreme or more moderate elements in the uprising and, 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 and in effect, contributed uh, to the rise of IS and, and, and Nusra Front. I mean, I'm just wondering how you contend with, with hear, that argument. I don't hear that argument that much anymore, really. But it was an argument that was made. It's made by the, those people who support us. There were people in Washington who wanted ISIS. Well, again, 
I mean, do you, do you think that Assad bears no. any responsibility for the Islamicization of the rebellion, or do you think that it was always, in essence, you, an Islamic you mean, rebellion? You mean despots are the kind of people that would engender friendships? And kind, He's a despot. He's a leader. Mm-hmm. He's a leader. I, I don't see him as any worse than the leadership in... in, in um, Particularly now in, in Saudi Arabia, where they're what they're doing to the people in, in the Shiite in the eastern in the eastern provinces, they're actually now they are actually now taking people they see to be as threats to the to, to the uh, to the royal family and cutting their heads off on, in, in front of everybody in a square and letting them bleed to death there. I mean, they're doing and hanging the body up. But presumably, one head. could be critical of both, right? I mean, well, no. But the point I'm making, I don't. You know, we all talk about. I I, I just a despot is a despot. Okay, his father ran the country, he ran the country. And so, um, uh, if you want to get rid of all the despots, that's great. The president is now meeting with the, uh, what is it, the CC, with the co- cooperation, and co- what is it called, the cooperation, the, in the Gulf? The, the co- Gulf Cooperation. What's Security. it called? What's it's it called? the GSCC. The GCC, yeah. The, yeah. It's the Gulf Cooperation Association or Committee. It's a defense, it's the only defense committee of the Gulf states, Oman and all, Bahrain and all these places. Bahrain, it's yeah. the only defense committee in the history of the world designed to protect from within. <laughs> Usually, they're affecting from outsiders. They're sure. worried about the the insiders who, uh, the UAE uh, in Abu Dhabi about a year and a half ago announced that everybody in a senior management job in any industry who was Shia had to leave overnight. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Some of you may know that they had to, maybe within a day or two they had to get out immediately. I mean, it's so. We can make degradations. Um, one of the more prescient aspects of your reporting on Syria has been the role played. By uh, by Erdogan, by the Erdogan government, um, okay. in facilitating the well, passage but, of. I'm, I'm, no, I'm wondering. You're, you're, how, you're loading up on me. Two questions. No, I'm not loading. I'm, I'm I'm wondering how is it that you well, were reporting on that long before others were? Well, um, because I knew from the intelligence reports that were coming in that okay. he was in that he was Hatay province. Do you and, think the war well, would? Let have me looked, let me answer. Hatay province had eight entry points, but let me go back to Bashar a second. Just just a point of view. Um, there's no question you could argue that if he loses to ISIS or al-Nusra, which would seem real a couple of years ago when I wrote that story about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs giving him direct aid in 2013, uh, if he loses, he's going to end up, he's staying. He's not going to run away. I mean, that I will tell you. But it's just, it would be out of, his father, if in his grave, would go after him. Uh, he's told me that in one, in one meeting. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Uh, there's no one, if, if ISIS won, he'd end up, he and his wife and the two children would end up uh, on, you know, like Mussolini, uh, hanging from a lamppole with the throats cut or something like that. That he know, that we all know. So it's a fight to the death. We agree on that. And so, um, I'm, you agree, don't you? It's, it's, there's a winner and loser in this sure. one. This, uh, maybe the only people that can possibly get him to, to leave, uh, um, uh, without being overrun or, uh, would be the Russians, which is why, or anyway, that's another story. And so, um, one of the things that the press says about him all the time, is he uses barrel bombs against his people. This is used all the time as, Jesus, how awful it is. So here I am, this Vietnam junkie who knows a country fighting, who was in a war at which the national security of anybody here was not at stake, even though we lost many more people. Guess what country used seven, for seven years used barrel bombs? The United States of America against the uh, North Vietnam, against the Viet, mostly in South Vietnam, full of napalm and cacodylic acid. And so, um, um, I'm not sure what the link is. The link is, would it have been better if he'd just been using 500 pounders? What if he'd been using 500 pounders? Would we have the same objection? 
Somehow barrel bombs became important, as if there was something pernicious about them, more pernicious. It's, it's just a cheap way, a, bar, a real bomb that you have to forge it. It's, it's not even, it's just, the, make that a propaganda point. It's so crazy because, would, would you argue if, he's bombing people. And, you know, did he use gas against his people? There's probably some cases where he did, not, not the one that he's most fated for. Um, I, I can't say he did, but I, anyway, we'll get to that. So I just look at different things about it. And, and um, 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 I've stayed away from it because I did see him six, five or six times. And I've also seen Nasrallah five or six times. And long conversations are more interesting with Nasrallah in a way because he's so friggin' smart. And so I stay away right now from some... Nasrallah is, is the Secretary General of Lebanese Hezbollah. Yeah, he's the sheik, the, the big boy. And um, very smart. Anyway, so I, I, I don't like to put myself... I, I don't have to know. There's so many other things going on. All right, what's your other question? I think we're actually going to open it up to the audience now. Well, we didn't do Iran, Syria, but we can do it. Well, well, my guy that wanted yeah. the first question ran away? The coward? Where'd he go? <laughs> He's not there. He's disappeared. Is he under the tape? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Let's do questions. You said you verify about your sources within the government, right? I'm verified. You verify. When, when he asked... No, the way it works, the way it works is... Um, at the London Review and also at the New Yorker, and I'll just go back to that, there's fact checkers. In the London Review, when I started writing for them uh, two or three years ago, they, would, they were hiring New Yorker fact checkers, people that have checked for me in New York, in Washington, because I wanted the, the same standard here. And it, it was expensive. I'm sure it was a blow to them. But, um, <laughs> but, um, and what they do is they have an independent conversation with the people I talk to. And people on the inside, and this happens occasionally, more than occasionally, there's some people that are willing to talk to me. There's a one person very prominent right now that would talk to me, but he won't talk to a checker, so I don't talk to him. Because they have to have a conversation with the fact checker. The fact checker cannot do anything but verify that this person is who he says he is, and they have external means of doing it. You can just look them up. Most people, there's you know, Google search and all that. And the second thing is they can verify everything he said to me that I write, he said he did say, and they can also verify in the conversation that this is a person who seems to have information above and beyond just what I narrow focus. They can do all that. They're smart people. And they can, they can fact check. So that's one way we get rid of trouble, of a potential problem. The other thing is people do, uh, uh, two of the best ones came to me because they were 30 years in the business and they couldn't stand what Bush and Cheney were doing. But they didn't want to go public because one case, one had... Two, his father and grandfather were very, very famous generals and, and very famous. One had things named after them. And one of them, another one of them was in society. And I can tell you, once at 19, 2005, I was working for, the New York, for um, Dave Remnick then at the New Yorker. And one day, one of the guys talked to me, was on the front page of the Washington Post, being the, with, he'd been offered a job as chair, uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He was a four-star general. And he'd been talking to me, and the New Yorker had been talking to him, fact-checkers, for five years. They did not know. And David called me, and he said, they don't know. And I said, they don't know. Uh, they don't know. They don't always, you know, the big eye, the trouble with what we have now with metadata is it's stupid. It's, it's guided by artificial intelligence. And that's why you, all the metadata in the world, you, you, you can... You can target a certain person, but if you're going to get somebody randomly, it's almost impossible. Uh, so I, I never was that much. Inf- anyway, that's the answer to your question. There, there are people I know, and then I stayed friends with them. 
And then they tell me about other people. Why? Go ahead. What's your next question? How do you verify that the information these sources gave you was, because, was true? Um, the really good information is initially strikes you as, oh my God, it's counterintuitive. Somebody says something to you and you say, what? And then you realize it's not. It's really not that counterintuitive. It's sort of a complicated thought process. It's, somebody says something and you realize, oh my God, it's ineluctable. If you're going to have this power, you'll do this. So you call other people up, you know. I've been around. I'm 70, friggin' 90 years old. Seven, nine, seven, nine. I've been around in Washington for 50 years. And I've never had, the only trouble I ever had with anybody was when somebody bragged publicly about talking to me after leaving. You know, a CIA guy. But so what? He ended up doing movies too. Bob Bear. Robert Bear. He, Robert he likes Bear. to tell people yeah, that yeah. he talked to me early. Anyway. Other, other questions? Hi, I'm a pediatrician and also a pacifist, so I don't understand what? the rules of war. Are they connected? War. Is that why? I don't <laughs> they that are, it? yes. If you, you didn't say but. You, you said and. You said and. Um, pediatrician and instead of but. <laughs> but would be totally wrong. Um, my daughter's where a, was I? She's an ER pediatrician. He's good, isn't he? I'll get no, no, My daughter's an ER pe- uh, pediatrician at <laughs> NYU, so she's... Okay. I, God... Passive resistance. Yes. Good for you. (laughs) I think there is more than a rumour that one of the vaccination campaigns in Pakistan was subverted. Uh, And this to me is... I've written about it. Good. All right. Uh, Read it. But this to me almost is worse than the barrel bombs because you are using a humanitarian resource to do bad and then people begin to say well, we can't trust people who are going under the guise of doctors, nurses, etc. It, it happened in Pakistan. It happened, it's happened all over Africa, as you know. The Africans are very skeptical. In Pakistan, what happened, and this is how short-sighted the allegedly rational smart guys in our intel community. In Pakistan, there was a, 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 a pretty well-known a, a doctor who did, he was um, funded by um, all sorts of charity institutions who ran around all over the country doing vaccinations, anti-polio initially, because that's polio's a running problem there. And he'd been doing this for years. And we, in our wisdom, geez, you know, we always worry about Pakistan because they have bombs. That's the issue with Pakistan. And Pakistan has over 100 nuclear bombs, and we're just terrified of them because no matter how much we talk about a mutual love and respect, both sides, you know, lie to each other. And so, um, as I write about the Bin Laden, we don't have to talk about Bin Laden because you can read it if you want to read it. It's, it's an amazing story, duplicity and double intrigue with people who have power of destroying the world. And not only that, perhaps giving the Saudis a bomb, which is another fear we have. Pakistanis, military very close to the Saudis. Anyway, and so there was this doctor, I've forgotten his name, who was doing it. And the agency says, wow. This guy is getting into villages and places we can't get to. White man not invited here, right? So we somehow get him in a position where he doesn't have much choice because we go to the government and we say, we need your help to convince this guy just to talk to us. So we compromise him. And then at some point, when we were, what happened is when bin Laden was killed, um, one of the one of the, the the reporters found that next door to the the compound in Abbottabad, I should say when Abbottabad when 
Bin Laden was murdered in cold blood by the United States, knowing they were going to do it beforehand, and having been told by the Pakistani leadership, you will not leave a body here. You will kill him and take him away. Because we don't want, we don't want to be in a position of anybody knowing we countenance this. Because as many of you know, if you get outside of Islamabad and Lahore even, a lot of the population, the white poloi, if you will, are very pro Bin Laden, very anti to what's, very pro jihadists. Anyway, and so what happens is, um, the, the report is found that in the house next to Bin Laden's compound, there was a nameplate on the door of a Pakistani major who it turns out was a nephologist and that long-standing American belief was he had bad kidneys. And so they made a connection that, my God, the Pakistani army had a, he was an army doctor was treating him. And in fact, they learned that from colloquially, locally from neighbors. And so that was a problem. We had to get rid of that. So we invented this doctor as somebody who may have helped him and who gave us early warning. So we threw his name all over, even though uh, I write about it. There's a section on it. I, I'm not, I, I'm only saying that because I don't want Adam to, to, um, uh, to, um, take, to make me do Bin Laden. I'm so tired of doing it. I've been doing it for three days, four days. But anyway, um, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, believe it or don't believe it. So let me say what happened. There was debate. They said, if you hint that the doctor really, the doctor Bin Laden's, they wanted to say, this doctor was Bin Laden's doctor. They wanted to drop his name. And there was people in the CIA even said, Jesus, this is the guy that you know, runs around giving polio. Do we really want to do it? They did it. And then the government charged him. Uh, they sentenced him to 33 years of treason or something like that, criminal activity for doing this, for helping us. I mean, it was a madness. He's in jail now. And then everybody thought, of course, everybody who does these polio shots that comes to our villages is a spy. So it was terrible what happened. And the pattern is the same. We like to recruit those people who do these kind of vaccinations in African countries because they know a lot of things. It is so stupendously stupid. And, and I don't understand why you had to tell me, besides you were a pacifist, that you're a doctor. That's what I don't know. You think I would be nicer to you or what? Why did that matter? Uh, we, we, have time, we, have, we have time for two more questions. Why? It's eight, what time does this go to? It goes till 8. We're already oh, running, sure. we're already so running five minutes late. But we'll take two questions and you can respond to both of them. And I'll be here. I'm not going anyplace. I'm, you know, sir, I'm just teasing. You do know that. My wife and children, daughter are doctors. I re- doctors are in, in our blood and in my family. Okay. Sir, sorry, as you're an American, uh, who would you like to see running for president who isn't already? Or who are you going to vote for? Okay, so I, I, you American, know, and let's, let's have one a, more question. Everybody, so that, here, everybody here can guess. And B, I just don't think, uh, I don't think, I don't think I have any real standing. I don't believe that, um, you know, um, I, I, I don't think I even give you an opinion of, of why Arsenal's so bad. You know what I mean? I don't think I have any standing to do any of that. I'm not an ex, I'm not a, I'm not a, but you can all know who I'm voting for. I will tell you what's happening in America that's interesting, and maybe it's going to happen here. America's dividing. It's, the right is much more right wing, and the, the middle and the moderate are much more left wing. What's happening to Sanders is a reflection of a great, great, great um, um, movement. It, I've never seen it quite so active that young people are saying, this is, we want something different. So it's going to be, you know, obviously, you obviously know what I'm going to vote for, but I just don't think I should, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it makes any difference who I vote for. You are going to have to do what you want to do in America. Let's go on. Okay, one more question. 
We should do two more. That was okay, a, that we'll was a two. two. We'll do two. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, a lot of your stories about uh, how you uh, aim to get the truth and expose things that are happening. And a lot of the stories, to some degree, are a little bit terrifying and scary. Is there any sense in which you've got stories of how the work that you've done and the things that you've revealed have made a positive difference, especially when you were talking about the Chicago police that you said you hated? Like, is there any s- times when something happened, you wrote something, and it made a very well, clear positive I don't difference? think there's any question... You know, um, excuse me, I have a little more snow to brush off my mantle. <laughs> but uh, Milai, Milai. Milai changed the point of the American view of the war. There's no question about that. It changed. When, when I wrote a story saying that American boys were executing v- innocent civilians, gathering them up in, in, in pods and, and execu- shooting them down one by one, it was so because, look, it shouldn't have surprised anybody because if you've been paying attention, to, if you'd read, there were many church groups that were going around and talking to vets who came back the, the mainstream press ignored all of this. We didn't have that much of an underground press then, in the early 60s, middle 60s. We had si- local city newspapers that were pretty good, but they weren't radical. There's, there's just, it was just there for the taking. And since I had read a lot of stuff from the, the Protestant movement and the, the uh, what's his name, that wonderful guy that was, uh, it doesn't Daniel matter. Daniel Berrigan? Well, no, but not Berrigan. Um, um, the, uh, he was at, taught at Yale. He was um, William, Co- William Sloan yeah. Coffin. Oh, William, Sloan Coffin. William Coffin. He was this um, um, Yale chaplain who had actually been in the CIA and quit, and he was this amazing man. He was leading the anti-war movement. And if you just listened to the left then, which we didn't, uh, you would have known, which I did, you would have known that there was a lot going bad. And also I'd covered the war, and I saw it was, it was, it was, it was freaking mass murder. What it was is you're an army lieutenant colonel. You get a brigade. Uh, you get a battalion. And um, it's a six-month tour of duty because every army lieutenant colonel wanted to make colonel, and they wanted to be a warrior. And the only way you could make colonel is you had to go kill people in Vietnam. And there were for every seven battalions, there was only one of the lieutenant colonels that would make colonel. And there was a deal. This is what the army was like. If you did six months and you killed the most body count, you had a better chance of making colonel. Everybody who did six months, everybody, everybody who did got a silver star, which is the second highest award you can get beyond Medal of Honor. They automatically gave you a six star just for surviving, just for being there. It was so insane what was going on in that war. And uh, go read to, to, to Tocqueville about um, democracy. Go read him about democracy. The Tocqueville, he said something very interesting. What he said was, the Tocqueville, when he wrote hundred, almost 200 years ago, he said, well, here's the real problem with democracy. He said, in England, you know, everybody knows who's going to lead everything. You're born to it. You know, you're the leader of the regiment because your family, you're the Prince of Wales and you're, you're going to warfare, you're going to lead. In America, the military is one of the few ways you can make it from the bottom up. And that means, and the military means you can go in and if you're really a good enough killer and can generate enough wars, you can raise to be a general. So I predict it's going to be the most warlike country in the world since it's the one easy means of success. He really wrote this in book two. Take a look at it. It's pretty amazing shit. Sorry, by the way, given the impact that, that your Milai reporting had, was it particularly moving for you to actually visit Milai? Because you did recently. You were in oh, Vietnam. I, you, can, you, you can't imagine how much I didn't want to go. I was going to go. I went back to the ditch where they slaughtered people. And I, I cry about it. I have to take my breath. I really do. Because it was just so awful. And it was worse. In a way, the kids were even worse. They were so, 
They were so out of control, and the officers let him go so out of control. They were so rapacious and horrible. I'm not talking about just... They would go... There's mostly Buddhists, but there were Christians, a lot of Christians, in, and they would go to a Christian village and dig up graves looking for stones and precious jewels. Officers didn't stop them for anything. Rape, murder, come on. Just... We can't begin to know what really happened there and how the Vietnamese could turn it. It's only, I read a lot about, about the, the uh, Japanese in World War II. There's a wonderful scholar at Harvard. John Dower. Yeah. yeah. This guy's got, he's, he, I want him to stay with me the rest of my life because I never remember John Dower. <laughs> it was against, what was it? it was against, the title was against. He's at BU. Yeah. Uh, no, he was at Harvard first. Did he go oh, to BU? Okay. It was against, I want to say against entropy, but that's a British novel. By, What's it called? Anyway, and so anyway, uh, what was the question? I just, just, so I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go. I was invited back by the state many times. And now the state, now by the time I just, and so I had three children that grew up with this around their neck. It was, it was, it was, it was their father's thing. And so I finally, um, last year, a year ago, decided we'd all go. And we went and we spent uh, about three or four weeks Couple two weeks there and went to South Asia. It was great. I didn't like Hong Kong. I've been to, I've been to all those places, Cambodia. I've been there in Cambodia when the the crazy Pol Pot people were around, and I've been to Vietnam. I I was one of the few American reporters, one of the two. Uh, Harrison Salisbury, the New York Times, in nineteen in nineteen sixty six. I I was in Hanoi during the war. I went to the North Vietnamese and I spent three or four weeks there, and. Um, um, and so I, I had a, a visceral, you know, I didn't know the language. Uh, I, I could do enough French that I could read the French. So, and, uh, though, if you remember back in the early 60s, um, Le Monde was it, you know, that was, you read Le Monde. You had to learn, you had to read enough. And there wasn't translation services you have now. Anyway, uh, the, Vietnam was the story. Uh, Abu Gra- the Abu Ghraib stuff was pretty significant too, because once again, there were American boys and those pictures of, you know, um, um, forcing men, you know, the sexual stuff they did, the degradation they did. Um, that, do you know what, what Rumsfeld said about that? Well, I don't, they weren't killing anybody. You know, sexual humiliation. If you go, I like sports, so if you go play tennis in Cairo and you go into the locker room, in America there's all this stuff, uh, towels, slapping, butts, and all those things you think about, right? All that comedy. Everybody, every male has a private shower because that's in the Koran. The Quran makes it clear that, you know, that your, your genitals are your genitals. <laughs> and so it's a very private place. And so you, and the idea, what they did, so I had, a, I had a, I, I'm not a big fan of what the Israelis do, but I like some Israelis. And I had an Israeli friend that was in Mossad. And I'll tell you about, this is going to take forever, but I'll, this is a guy I met. He was allegedly a businessman and it became clear to me Israeli. And he came on to me at a party in the 80s. And we had lunch and it was clear. I didn't really, I knew there was something going on, but we went to it one day before I really figured out what was going on. He was very smart about a lot of things. And he was, uh, and we, we, we were, I liked him. He was jolly and, and smart. Knew, his father was the leading uh, Shakespearean scholar of, of England. And he had gone into the most radical group, the Sayarak Makral, which is their underground, their, their joint special, like your SAS. And he did, you know, you go there out, out of high school. And when he, uh, they were old socialists, and the Israeli in the old days were old pro-Russia socialists. They were all, you know, everything was collective. If you lived in, anyway, 
He, the story he told was he went to training after high school. And he was so proud of himself. He got the beanie of this. It's Iraq. They're the black group that go around assassin. They do crazy things. Um, and he came home and he went and he had the beanie. It's a spe- different color beanie. It's the highest elite form. And everybody in, in, when you're 18, you go with before you go to college. And he walked and he said to his father, he, his father was home. He spent months. He was teaching, um, at, at, at uh, Oxford for six months. And he came back. His father was home then for his, uh, this, whatever, a, a rotation. And he walked into his father. He said, Dad. And his father said, after all this, I have a fascist, he said. <laughs> it was killed him. It killed him. I, anyway, one day we went to a German restaurant. And he knew he knew Arabic and he knew French. And he knew English well. And obviously Hebrew. And so the waiter comes and we order something. And he gets it wrong. And all of a sudden, my friend Dudu starts speaking perfect Arabic to him. I mean, uh, uh, I didn't know about the air. Per- perfect German. It was a German restaurant. It was a German waiter. He started speaking perfect. I mean, just... Uh, uh, it seemed to me, it, you know, it wasn't maybe... It, was, it wasn't colloquial, but it was really good German. I, I, I know some German. Anyway, I said to him, this is 1985, and he's a little bit younger than me, but he, so he was... In the, by 50, he would have been in this unit, by 51, 52. And here's this... I said to him, my God, where'd you learn German? He looked at me and he said, tell me something. He said, do you really think Eichmann was the first? He said, I know every alley in Damascus. Where a lot of Germans are, wow, that's a history we're going to learn. What the Jew, what the Israelis did in Damascus, because that's where many people hit out. Anyway, the point of all this is, we, we stayed friends. He retired from Mossad. He later told me what he was doing. He was also a warrior. He was in the reserve in, in, the, in the 73 war. He won medals because he was, he was called up as a Mossad guy to fight in a tank battalion and against the Egyptians, and his commander got killed, and he lit a rally. He has, a, a, he has from here down to his groin, he was opened up by a shell uh, in uh, fighting. So, you know, interesting people. So when I do the Abu Ghraib story about the sexual stuff, he calls me up, and he says... Because I've been watching at home, and he says, Jesus, you, God damn you Americans, he said. He said, are you crazy? He said, let me tell you something. He said, I hate Palestinians. I hate, some, not all of them, but I hate, I hate them, and they hate me. And I've done terrible things to Palestinians, and they've done bad things to me and my family and my friends. He said, and there's no, there's no, no comedy. He said, but let me tell you something about Palestinians. N- nobody in their right mind sexually humiliates a Palestinian. That is absolutely the one thing you cannot do. You know what you've done. You've made it so much harder for yourself. Scared the hell out of me. And so I'd also, when we invaded Afghan in the fall of Afghan in 81, in 2001, when Bush, despite having Taliban after Taliban coming through the back door, you know, in Pashtun society, the, in Pashtun society, the, uh, uh, your guest is a... Uh, uh, anybody is a visitor is your guest and you don't rat him out. And so bin Laden's there and there was a, all this talk about they weren't, you know, he was a society. We, 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 we couldn't deal with them. They were coming to everybody they knew from the old CIA days and saying, look, he's not our guest anymore. You know where he is. Do what you want. He's a troublemaker. We want him out of here, you know, and, and of course we didn't do that. So when the war began, there was a guy, uh, my son, um, had played sports with it. A wonderful Afghan kid. And his father, his father was an amazing man. He just, they just come from Afghanistan. His father was the badminton chaplain of, champion of Afghanistan. Anyway, 
And so I asked him who I should call about Afghanistan, and he gave me the name of a professor at some university somewhere who very wise in all things Afghanistan. I called the guy up about a week after the war began. I said, so tell me about Afghan and Pashtun society. He said, well, let me just tell you for starters what you've been into. He said, in Afghan society, in Pashtun society, revenge does not have to come quickly. It can come a decade later and be perfectly okay. So in other words, you've opened yourself up to some guy walking on the street eight years later and slaying you or your children. It can also come to children. He said, you have, you guys don't bother to learn anything about culture before you start using them. Uh, it's just terrifying. We should be done. Well, thank you. Thank, uh, I, oh, yeah, there you are. But you left. You got, ran away. It's got to be a really short one. We are you, way you, over, we're, actually. We're go ahead. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? You left. Oh, no, I went out for a cigarette. I'm totally sorry. I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally sorry. Um, okay. Um, I spend way too much time on YouTube, yeah? Um, and I... Um, What's your question? Quick. Okay, right. Did you ever meet the ISI contact? And did the head of the ISI meet with um, um, USA sources the day after 9-11? Why do you ask me that question? Because that's what I've heard. I'm very much good. Well, I say good authority, you know. I've probably had more ISI contact than most American reporters. Yeah, but rather than your high school diploma, I'd rather hear about the kind of... I don't know. You, where'd you see it on iTube? I mean, that's, I, that happens to be true. I was just talking. Oh, yeah, that's I was, what I mean. That's what I'm saying, man. I mean, uh, I, I appreciate, you know, your life history. But, what uh, were you smoking? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 Thank you. I knew, I, I knew, uh, I knew within two days after the raid from, from Karachi that the story was all bad. And then I, I had, I went to American friends that said, wow, I don't know how you know it, but boy, are you right. And I also knew something from inside the White House that it was bad. So there you go. What? <laughs> uh, please, please join me in giving a round of applause to Seymour. Thank Harris. you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 